Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, January the 9th, 2024. It's going to be a long year, at least when it comes to scandals about American politics. The headlines today are about elections and disinformation and judicial skepticism of Donald Trump's claim to immunity. That's in the New York Times, in the Wall Street Journal, um, uh, similar pieces about Trump's presidential immunity, uh, a new campaign fronts on that front. Um, and uh, the, uh, the Washington Post, of course, is also featuring this story. It's not just Trump, of course, and his corruption of one kind or another, political, moral above all, and um, economic. It's other politicians too. Eric Adams, for example, um, is in trouble. Uh, he apparently is entangled with Turkish financiers, which marks a new level of kleptocracy, at least according to my guest today. Um, uh, and it's not just uh, in the US, uh, in the UK, again, according to my guest, Casey Mikel, uh, the United Kingdom is enabling the kleptocrats of Eurasia to weaken their own law, uh, rule of law. Casey Mikel is no stranger to the show. He was on a year or two ago talking about how uh, an unregulated economy poses a threat to democracy. His book, American Kleptocracy, How the U.S. Created the World's Greatest Money Laundering Scheme in History, was a big success. And later this year, he has a, an important new book out. It's called Foreign Agents, How American Lobbyists and Lawmakers Threaten Democracy Around the World. Um, foreign policy have already suggested that this is one of the most anticipated books of the new year. It's not out until the fall. So I thought I would get Casey on the show to talk a little bit about the current political environment and um, the threats to democracy. Uh, Casey, uh, happy new year. I'm not sure if it is going to be a very happy new year, is it? <laughs> well, we are about a week and a little bit over uh, already. And certainly we've seen scandal upon scandal, revelation upon revelation that I think is going to set a little bit of the tone for what we can expect, at least in the United States of America for this, uh, the rest of this year. Uh, certainly the biggest thing being the pre presidential election uh, in November, but there are going to be any number of stories, any number of revelations, and certainly any number of scandals between now and then that are going to keep, certainly on my end, me very busy for the foreseeable future. Yeah, well, I'm sure you're not entirely unhappy about that. Your book, Foreign Agents, will be coming out in October. Surprise, surprise, just in time for the election. How worried are you about American democracy? It's so hard to tell what will happen this year. Well, look, Andrew, that's a great question. And certainly I have my days that are ups and days that are downs. I think in the long term, still certainly optimistic about the future and the trajectory of the United States of America as a whole and for the broader liberal democratic project on this planet. I don't need to explain to you or the listeners all the setbacks we have seen over the past even just few years at this point, whether it's out of Russia or China or certainly elements of the American political establishment. Um, 
there have been any number of unprecedented and certainly very concerning and disheartening developments in Washington as well as elsewhere over the past few years. And again, as I just mentioned, I don't think there's going to be any reason for that uh, not to continue for the foreseeable future. I mean, I will say to your point, though, about me being happy about some of these developments, the way that I would phrase it is that the silver lining of some of these developments in Washington and elsewhere is that it unfortunately makes my work all the more relevant. Uh, and I would like to think all the more timely, especially for a book like Foreign Agents, which comes out in August of this year, just before the uh, election. Yeah. yeah. I, uh, I'm sure again, you're going to get, get hundreds of people now pre-ordering on Amazon, uh, Foreign Agents, How American Lobbyists and Lawmakers Threaten Democracy Around the World. Is this the biggest threat in your mind to American democracy, foreign agents, lobbyists, investing in politicians, might be Eric Adams, might of course be Donald Trump, in order to either undermine American democracy or pursue their own particular interests? I would say, Andrew, it's a great question. I would think that the threat is not necessarily one of scope or scale, uh, insofar as the threat is actually how broad it truly is. As you have just highlighted, this is not just on one end of the American political spectrum. This is not simply relegated to the Trumpist wing of the Republican Party. Unfortunately, over and again, we have seen just how wide open those on the right, those on the center, and those increasingly on the left as well in the United States of America, both at the federal as well as at the local levels, have turned to foreign patrons, foreign regimes, uh, foreign benefactors time and time and time again to uh, not only whitewash those regimes themselves, open up doors in the process in Washington and elsewhere, but even increasingly open doors to the American political establishment, especially on the financial side. I think one of the reasons, and maybe we'll talk about this further uh, in this conversation, Andrew, one of the reasons the Eric Adams story is so gobsmacking so potentially precedent setting is not just that Eric Adams, who again is allegedly is accused of and is being investigated for opening doors for the regime out of Turkey, but also opening up the coffers of local elections in my now uh, home city of New York. Yeah, remind uh, everybody, Eric, I was going to call you Eric. That would be a major <laughs> mistake, Casey. Uh, remind everyone who Eric Adams is, because not yes. everyone will be known. Uh, Eric Adams is the mayor of New York, which is, again, a city of nine, nearly 10 million people. Yeah, no, not, not an insignificant place no, and not, not an insignificant. insignificant job. And what's he been accused of? Taking Turkish he, money? The, he's being accused of not only taking Turkish money during his campaign as well and using cutouts, which were effectively uh, middlemen for Turkish financing for his campaign, but then uh, streamlining, cutting through any number of red tape, using his position then as mayor in an illicit fashion to open doors for Turkish officials to entrench the Erdogan regime in Ankara back in Turkey. He's uh, most spectacularly accused of helping um, uh, uh, cut through bureaucratic hurdles, again, illicitly without uh, revealing any of this to any other New Yorkers or others in opening the world's biggest Turkish consulate right here in New York City. It is a spectacular construct, a spectacular probably building. Probably rather like, uh, I was just in Istanbul uh, last year, it's probably rather like the new airport. They have a, uh, um, a love of giganticism in uh, especially <laughs> yes. the, the Erdogan people. So let, let's be clear, Casey, this is a serious issue. And yet lobbying isn't illegal. Uh, American politicians are allowed to take money from Shell, Exxon, Google, Facebook, 
arms dealers. What's the difference between taking money from a corporation and taking money from a foreign government? Well, certainly, as you would hear it from lobbyists who defend their work, there is no difference. And Andrew, I think you're exactly right. And it's worth reminding listeners that in the very first amendment of the American Constitution, which also contains the freedoms of speech, freedoms of religion, freedom of the press, there is a separate freedom which doesn't get quite as much attention in the public consciousness, public awareness, and that is the right to petition the government for a redress of grievances, which is uh, uh, perhaps a long-winded say of a right to lobby yeah, government and, and officials and themselves. This was the heart of Madisonian democracy. He said, if, if men weren't, if men were angels, there'd be need for no government. So we form naturally, for better or worse, into factions, and therefore democracy should enable the legal. A pursuit of factional interests. So, so Absolutely. that's what lobbying is. Absolutely. And it is also, furthermore, the right of constituents themselves to directly contact, to directly pressure, to directly call for certain policies within the policymaking community. It is in many ways a way of opening the doors to other Americans who at the time were presumed to only be lobbying on behalf of American interests. But as we saw in the second half of the 20th, and especially in this first quarter of the 21st century, foreign regimes, foreign governments, foreign corporations, foreign oligarchs realized they could take full advantage of that constitutional right. And furthermore, they realized any number of Americans would be more than happy, more than willing to open the doors in Washington and elsewhere using those lobbying uh, rights uh, themselves to influence American policy. We are speaking with uh, Casey uh, Michel, uh, one of America's leading investigative journalists, especially of financial crimes, financial fraud. Um, everyone will be familiar with his book, uh, American Kleptocracy. It did extremely well. He was on the show a year or two ago talking about it. There's a new book coming out in the fall, just ready for the election, Foreign Agents. Casey, you're outspoken on Ukraine. You're not shy to express yourself in the Wall Street Journal piece. Um, uh, uh, from uh, last year, you talked about uh, this is no time to go wobbly on Russia and the Ukraine war. I'm guessing that there are lots of lobbyists for Ukraine too. We, one doesn't always hear of criticism of them. Is there a difference in your mind between lobbying for Ukraine as opposed to lobbying for Putin's Russia or Xi's China or Erdogan's Turkey? Should we be critical and suspicious of all these foreign lobbyists, even if we approve of what they're lobbying about? I think there is every reason to be, if not suspicious, then demanding of transparency as it pertains to those Americans. And again, we're talking about Americans, American individuals, American PR shops, American consultancies, American law firms, even increasingly, as I write about in both my first and now forthcoming second book, Think Tanks and Universities, demanding the transparency about who is paying these uh, contracts, who these individuals and organizations are meeting with in Washington and elsewhere, how they are attempting to target and sway American audiences is the bare minimum. And then beyond that, enforcing either civil penalties or criminal penalties when those Americans do not well, follow the regulatory requirements. Yeah, I mean, what, what can you... What are you allowed to do and not allowed to do? America spends billions of dollars overseas pursuing its own interest, lobbying groups, not just in uh, Western democracies, but presumably in, in, in China and Russia. Uh, what's the gray area? What is allowed and what isn't allowed? Frankly, Andrew, there is 
far too much that is allowed. If we think back to the right of lobbying unto itself, that is the right to petition government for the redress of grievances. That is a broad constellation of basically anything that these actors uh, and these American lobbyists who are acting on behalf of foreign governments want to do, whether it is meeting directly with officials, whether it is writing op-eds or airing television segments on behalf of their um, uh, their patrons, whether it is bankrolling think tanks and universities, uh, whether it's even targeting local officials, as we've seen in New York and other places increasingly, they have a wide, wide, wide array of tools and tactics at their disposal. And should we approve of that or not? Is that what you're against? There are certainly plenty of those who have argued that these actions need to be limited. Well, you're avoiding, no, but what about you, Casey <laughs> and Michelle? Do that you is, my first step would be enforcing the laws on the books. Uh, and that pertains to the transparency requirements. Because there, when you talk about limiting, when you talk about restricting these kinds of rights as they are laid out in the Constitution, then you get into the kind of gray areas about rights and privileges that are extended to others uh, that don't deserve to be. Now, I would say where I come down, as folks will see in the book, I think it is high time to reconsider the allowances, the abuse that we have seen of these First Amendment privileges uh, by foreign governments and by foreign regimes. And there are far uh, more uh, constitutionally sound and legally sound minds than mine that have put forth considerations about how these foreign lobbyists have been restricted. I will say, though, uh, to that point, Andrew, one of the things that I have written on in the past and certainly write on in the forthcoming book is that the conversation in Washington has, for the first time in decades, finally changed. Um, I won't spoil too much, but uh, folks may not be aware that in 2020, when uh, then-candidate Joe Biden was running for president, he was the very first major American presidential candidate to call for outright banning uh, foreign lobbying as we know it in Washington. Now, we haven't seen that since, but he was the very first candidate and now president to make that a specific plank. So certainly we are trending in one clear direction of restrictions uh, and certainly of transparency as it pertains to these foreign lobbyists. So Biden can save us on this. He doesn't seem to have been the most effective of presidents. Certainly Americans don't see him as being particularly effective. Certainly on this space. Uh, he has not been effective insofar as we have not seen the banning of foreign lobbying in Washington, as we know. And certainly I have been very critical as it pertains to his administration's decisions, whether on foreign lobbying as it's traditionally understood, whether it pertains to rolling back investigations of universities or disclosure requests of think tanks that are taking millions upon millions of dollars from foreign governments, especially foreign dictatorships themselves, uh, and doing, frankly, God knows what. What's the difference, though, Casey, between taking money? I mean, you you know DC probably better than I do. All these institutions are supported by corporations, foreign governments. What's the difference between taking money from Turkey or China or Germany or Russia and taking money from Google or, or ExxonMobil? That's a um, certainly one of the key questions I tackle in my book. Where I'm approaching this from is that those corporations you just outlined are still, at the end of the day, American entities, uh, American registered uh, uh, companies, organizations, uh, industries writ large. Yes, they operate globally and transnationally. Um, and certainly some of them uh, use broader tax evasion schemes as it pertains to minimizing their tax burden in the United States of America. But at the end of the day, they are American corporations and are part of the American body politic, whereas these foreign governments are not. Frankly, uh, if I lived in a perfect world, and I would love to see this during my lifetime, those abilities to lobby on behalf of foreign governments would be restricted 
to the diplomatic core. That is to say, it would be German or French or Ukrainian or Somalian, South African, you pick the country, diplomats con conversing with American diplomats, retaining those conversations at the diplomatic level among those that are experts in these communities that can then relay recommendations and best practices and policies writ large to Congress and to the White House. Uh, unfortunately, we are not there yet. But, but, uh, but it's such a complicated business. Let's take Israel, for example. Mm -hmm or for that matter, Palestine, um, mm -hmm. huge amount of lobbying, mm -hmm. uh, formally and informally, to, to make the Israeli case for the Gaza war. Some of that money, no doubt, is coming from Israel, but much of it's coming from American Jews and American Jewish groups. How do you distinguish between the two? And, and, and are you in danger of, of creating a kind of cultural isolationism where you don't allow foreign governments to invest so to speak, in American politics, which, of course, will inevitably counted, be countered by the fact that they won't allow American government to invest in overseas projects of one kind or another. That is certainly a potential outcome insofar as we will have less or fewer pro-regime, pro-foreign governmental uh, op-eds and television programs and meetings uh, and backroom conversations with legislators in Washington as, as elsewhere. That's certainly a possibility, but I certainly think that's a cost worth paying if it means uprooting and ending the cycle of millions and potentially, well, certainly as we've seen over the last few years, now in the billions of dollars of money that we know of uh, that has been registered, that is transparent, that we can track to say nothing of the millions of potentially more that we don't know of that is going to other organizations, other industries themselves, again, in Washington and elsewhere that we have extremely little insight into. I, I will say to your initial question, Andrew, as it pertains to, you know, in this case, the Israel-Hamas war, uh, the uh, concerns about foreign lobbying playing a role. Again, I, I, I suppose I'll take it back to what I mentioned initially. Those Americans, American citizens who are freely and uh, continually allowed those First Amendment uh, as well as other constitutional protections, should be able to continue uh, enjoying those protections, enjoying those rights themselves. But that doesn't mean those have to extend to foreign governments or even foreign organizations that then use and abuse those privileges that we have seen time and time and time again. And again, this is what I hope to do in this book is track this controversy, track this conversation, because it's not recent. It is not only something we have seen in the past. Few many years. Americans have dual dual loyalties. Many American Jews, for example, have some loyalty towards Israel. Many American Palestinians have loyalty to, uh, to, 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 to their friends and family in, in Gaza or Palestine. Isn't that, especially in a country like America, which is defined as a melting pot, mm -hmm. where everyone comes from somewhere else, doesn't it become a little trickier, a little, uh, so to speak, dirtier in terms of our loyalties? It has been, uh, as readers will see in this book, it has been nothing if not tricky for the past 220, 240 years to disentangle uh, these legal protections as it pertains to lobbying in the United States of America and how foreign governments, foreign regimes intersect uh, and again, use and abuse those rights themselves. As I mentioned a moment ago, these are still Americans. They, they enjoy constitutional protections as such. They may have their loyalties or preferences or proclivities for certain governments, certain countries, certain industries, certain policies, and they are still constitutionally protected as it pertains to uh, using those rights themselves. This also, though, I will say to your point, Andrew, gets to the crux of the issue of the explosion of the foreign lobbying 
complex an industry as I write about in my book and certainly elsewhere is it is that foreign regimes are turning to Americans themselves to do effectively their dirty work, to lobby on their behalf. Now, if those individuals are, again, taking funds from those foreign governments, that's one thing. But if they're acting on their own viewpoints as they understand them to be, uh, that's a separate issue. It's complicated. And uh, I'm particularly excited, actually, to see this book, Foreign Agents. It's out in the fall. It's an important book about a particularly important subject. I want to remind everyone that high-quality guests on the Keenon show, like Casey Michel. Uh, Michel is uh, uh, brought to you by Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. It's an excellent new publication and publishes the work of important journalists like uh, Casey. Going to run a short feature, and then we'll be back to talk more foreign agents. I want to drill down into Trump, of course, and some of his associates and also talk about China. So don't go away, anyone. We'll be back in a second to talk more foreign agents. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. Some people believe that our liberties will be threatened if a certain Donald Trump is elected president again. We are speaking with uh, Casey uh, Michel, the author of Foreign Agents, an upcoming book. Uh, Casey, I'm sure you've got some secrets in the book that you don't want to reveal completely, but do you think that Donald Trump was controlled in any way in his first administration or even now by, quote-unquote, foreign agents? Were, were, were foreign governments paying Trump to behave, do certain things or don't do certain things? I think that one of the things my book will do will reveal the unprecedented nature of the role and relationship of foreign agents, foreign lobbyists, within the Trump administration and regarding the president himself. And again, this isn't necessarily something that is only in the book. I and certainly plenty of others have written about this before. What Donald Trump presented was an unprecedented break uh, in both scope and scale as it pertains to the access that foreign agents, foreign lobbyists, and beyond them, foreign regimes had to the White House itself. And I, I will say, Andrew, you know, the, the figure of Donald Trump looms over so much of American politics these days, but certainly as it pertains to his relationship with foreign agents and foreign lobbyists, it is beyond what I could certainly have ever imagined. When I was a graduate student, looking specifically at how foreign dictatorships, especially those out of the post-Soviet space, targeted and manipulated American audiences and American policymakers, I never in a thousand years anticipated that one of the figures that I was focused on would end up becoming Donald Trump's campaign manager in 2016. That is the figure of Paul Manafort, who uh, uh, plays an outsized role in the uh, the book itself. A fascinating story, a tragic oh, Yeah, story. Manafort, and yeah, of course, the other person who often comes to mind with all this is Roger Stone. Are there exhibits A and B in, 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 in your arguments in foreign agents, the way in which they've simply become, seems at least, receptacles to foreign money? Paul Manafort is certainly exhibit A, his story 
forms one of the narrative spines of the book in and of itself. Roger Stone certainly gets plenty of mention as well. And unfortunately, there were any number of other Trump advisors, uh, Trump uh, administration officials who were either indicted or then later convicted, likewise, of acting as foreign agents and foreign lobbyists. Um, there were foreign policy advisors, economic advisors, his personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, investigated for acting on behalf of foreign interests, his national security advisor, later convicted of acting on behalf of foreign interests. This is an unprecedented scope. The sheer number, the sheer volume of figures in the Trump orbit was unlike anything we have ever seen in American history, changing American policy, in some cases, changing Trump's speeches uh, themselves. And I will say, Andrew, uh, unfortunately, the manuscript for the book has already been wrapped, so I wasn't able to include the latest news from just last week when a congressional report revealed that Trump organization uh, uh, buildings themselves and investments had received millions, millions of dollars from foreign governments out of Saudi Arabia and elsewhere while Trump was president. Again, this is just one small look uh, at, uh, again, truly the unprecedented nature of the Donald Trump presidency and potentially return to the presidency. Is it mostly Russian money or was it mostly Russian money when it came to Manafort? Was it Saudi money, Gulf money, uh, monies from around the world, Chinese money? Paul Manafort has one of the longest litanies, longest rosters of foreign clients, frankly, that I'm aware of in all of American history. It's not just Russian funding. It's not just Russian oligarchs or those in Ukraine, those pro-Russian interests in Ukraine he was working with. He was working with autocrats and dictators uh, everywhere from Angola to the Philippines. He was working, um, uh, frankly, around the world uh, in, uh, in Nigeria, in Somalia, over and over. Frankly, wherever you found a dictatorship, you were likely to find Paul Manafort behind them. And I will say, ironically, so many of his clients later ended up ousted from power, whether it was Sani Abacha in Nigeria, Mobutu in Zaire, Jonas Savimbi in Angola, the Marcoses in Philippines, or in the United States of America, Donald Trump, and of course, most spectacularly, Viktor Yanukovych in Ukraine. It's easy, of course, to pile in on Trump, but Manafort uh, served as advisor in presidential campaigns, not just of Trump, but of Ford and Reagan. George H.W. Bosch and uh, Bob Dole. I, I mean, how much does this speak of a, a systemic corruption of American politics, particularly uh, in Manafort's context of Republican politics? It was, uh, it's an illustration as clear as I could find, and that is the reason that it is, is uh, contained as the, the narrative spine of the book itself, this story of Paul Manafort. Uh, it is a story of clear and continued rot uh, across the American political spectrum, in Manafort's case, on the American right, he was as much a member of the quote-unquote traditional Republican firmament uh, as anyone in Washington in the 1970s, 1980s, and through the 1990s. He was extremely close to figures like Secretary of State James Baker, former presidential candidate Bob Dole. Uh, obviously, he was part and parcel of the Reagan administration and Reagan's election in 1980s. And in many ways, his selection in 2016 as Donald Trump's campaign manager, for lack of a better term, sealed the deal between Trump and these nominally traditional Republicans, these kind of old money, old school Republican worlds. Um, it is not, again, we focus plenty on Trump and rightfully so, but this is not a story. This is not a phenomenon that was introduced by Trump or is limited to Trump or is even limited to the American, uh, to the Republican Party in the United States of America. It is across the board. It has been going on for years. Trump is simply the most 
flamboyant and spectacular. Yeah, I mean, Trump, Trump's skill is not inventing stuff, but taking advantage exactly. of rules. Is there a connection? A lot of people still scratching their heads about why most Republicans, even most mainstream Republicans, still continue to argue that the last election was was corrupt. Is there, in your view, a connection between foreign agents and this filtering in of foreign money and this big lie uh, of the Republican Party, which in itself is undermining American democracy? I would say, yes, absolutely. There is a linkage. It is perhaps nebulous and it's not necessarily something I focus on in my work or in the book itself, but I don't think it's any surprise. I don't think it's any shock that it is those autocratic regimes and governments elsewhere that during the Trump administration and then including in the aftermath as well, bankrolled Trump, bankrolled Trump organizations use their illicit gains, their kleptocratic wealth to open doors in the Trump administration and presumably will continue to do so because it redounds to their benefit to see a weakened, a chastened, a divided United States of America, whether that is the Russias and the Chinas of the world, whether that is other monarchies, other autocracies and other dictatorships elsewhere to encourage the decline of American ability to expand or focus on democratic principles to undercut America's democratic experiment writ large. It absolutely redounds to their benefit. And again, it's no surprise that we have seen these governments bankroll Trump and his associates and his organization over and over and over again. Now, I'm not going to say that that is the primary reason. We have seen the continued dismissal, the continued emphasis uh, on the on the uh, on the clear lie, the supposed the so-called big lie of a supposedly stolen 2020 election. Many of those factors, most of those factors, are still endogenous to inherent to the United States of America. But certainly, foreign money, foreign funding, and foreign agents play a role in inflaming that discourse and encouraging the kind of partisan divides we have seen uh, sink Washington uh, for the past few years. We know all, of course, about Manafort and the way he channeled Russian money, but we've done some shows on, on China and particularly the way in which the Chinese government officially perhaps or unofficially seems to fund groups critical of, of China critics in the West. This blew up in Australia. It's also featured as news stories in the United States. How does China play out in your narrative in, in foreign agents? Are they ultimately given their wealth and power as uh, the only other arguably superpower in the world, are they ultimately the greatest threat? I would say at this point in American history, at this point in global history, yes, they are still the primary threat as it pertains to foreign agents, foreign lobbying, or frankly, American national security writ large. If you would ask me this, uh, Andrew, five, six, seven years ago, I would have put them at a second tier underneath Russia. But given developments since February of 2022 and Russia's expanded invasion of Ukraine, I would say the Russian threat as it pertains to subterranean, uh, undisclosed foreign lobbying, foreign interference networks, that has receded. And now it is China that has has taken the top spot. And certainly there's plenty uh, as it pertains to China's operations in the United States of America that we have seen over and again, even just in the past few years. Um, uh, I don't have the data in front of me, but folks will see at the very first page of the book itself, the explosion of Chinese expenditures 
in the foreign lobbying space. We're talking magnitudes, hundreds of percentage more than just in even in 2016. That is what Beijing is now spending on foreign lobbying networks in Washington. And frankly, again, it is the who's who of former American officials, of uh, American PR shops and consultancies that are working hand in glove uh, with the Chinese regime. Right. We had a show, uh, I, I, uh, the, the, the journalist, uh, DC-based journalist called Fish, mm -hmm. who argues that many, and he, and he focused on Henry Kissinger, who unfortunately just died, that these people, knowingly or otherwise, are actually in the pocket of, of, China, of, of, of the Chinese government. Is, is, in your mind, is there some truth to that? Yeah, absolutely there is. Um, now, Kissinger, I have written on in the past, certainly his connections with China, as well as any range of other regimes, were at the very least questionable and deserve far more research. But you have, again, some of the leading PR shops, some of the leading consultancies, uh, and former American officials as well uh, across the political spectrum that have, uh, in this case, left office to effectively do the bidding of the regime in China. These are figures like former vice presidential candidate Joe Lieberman on the Democratic side, who was working for a state-controlled uh, Chinese telecom as one of their lobbyists, uh, as well as former Republican House Speaker John Boehner, who is now working for a firm that is lobbying on behalf of China as well. Uh, you know, again, we're, we're talking about the lobbyists themselves. This isn't even touching on Chinese funding and financing of things like American higher education, which the book goes into far more detail on and was subject to high profile congressional and uh, later executive level investigations in the United States of America, which helped lead to the revelation of billions of dollars in undisclosed financing from China, as well as a range of other autocracies going to leading American universities that was supposed to have been disclosed and yet never was. Uh, and some of these universities couldn't even track and trace with the ultimate. So it's legitimate for the Chinese or the Russians or the Saudis to put money into universities. They just have to reveal it. Is that your argument? That's correct. In the United States of America, nonprofits, which include higher education systems, are allowed to take as much money from as many sources as they would like, foreign, domestic, so on and so forth. Uh, in the university space, though, since the 1980s, American higher education system was supposed to disclose to the federal government uh, any gift, any contract, any donation that was over $250,000. This was on the books since at least the 1980s, and yet universities for decades um, flouted this requirement, never disclosed anything, or what they did disclose was effectively impossible to, to trace. Now, to the university's, I suppose, limited credit, this was also because American administration after American administration never bothered to actually enforce those requirements. And ironically enough, it wasn't until the Trump administration in the late 2010s that Washington began investigating and paying attention to these requirements and universities revealed themselves as having failed to disclose billions of dollars. And again, from the Russias, the Chinas, the UAEs, the Qatars, the Saudi Arabias of the world. And yeah, no one's offered me $250 million or even $100,000. So Give it time, Andrew. I'm sure yeah, it's I'm waiting for anyone watching from China or Saudi or Russia, you can write me a check. I won't reveal it. Um, <laughs> finally, uh, on your X page, you have half jokingly uh, a tweet which you've uh, retweeted suggesting there's still time to nominate your candidate for 2023 corrupt person of the year. Who would you give that to and who would you predict will be the most corrupt person in 2024 well boy they unfortunately there are so many candidates to choose from andrew that i don't know that i could necessarily no one comes to mind i mean manafort probably would have won it 
for many uh, years earlier but probably yes. not for 2023 he's certainly he's certainly uh in the running and who's to say where manafort will be in 2024 later this year and and beyond i i should say uh we have already concluded the uh, the voting on that and uh, the, who won uh, i bet Trump won for the very first time, a female uh, awardee. Uh, this was uh, Maria Consuelo Porras, who is the Guatemalan Attorney General, who is not flashy. She does not have a, very much of a public persona, um, uh, not even necessarily in the broader anti-corruption community, but she has been the key figure in launching the gutting of uh, Guatemala's anti-corruption apparatus. This is a, a far longer story, but Guatemala was considered one of the success stories in terms of anti-corruption infrastructure and, and pro-democracy progress in the 2010s. Fast forward to here we are in the 2020s, and she has almost single-handedly dismantled that entire apparatus, oh, yeah, well, which is why we were yeah. her. She's Plenty in of the candidates. Hall of Shame. Who knows we'll be in the Hall of Shame for 2024. Finally, finally, Casey, what about AI? Is AI part of the problem or can this help AI is to the problem of foreign agents? Just like many other things, AI is a tool. It depends on whose hand it will be used in and certainly all of the ways and manifestations it will be used, I cannot foresee. But certainly, I mean, of course, I don't need to go into the concerns as it pertains to AI, especially AI run wild or hallucin hallucinations uh, themselves and the lack of uh, ability to actually gain any insight into how some of the decisions are made by AI and large language models. But I will say one of the potential advantages of using machine learning and of using AI is actually data management, data analytics. Because one of the things to turn this back to where we were talking about earlier, Andrew, the transparency requirements that still exist in the United States of America for foreign lobbyists. This is, uh, uh, these include uh, uh, significant documentation requirements about who you've been meeting with, who's been paying your bills, uh, and then beyond that, whether or not you've actually been donating to uh, the politicians you've been lobbying on behalf of uh, regimes themselves. I can absolutely foresee a way that AI could be used to scrape that data, analyze that data, and provide far keener, far greater insights into how these regimes are using American lobbyists, how are, are using foreign agents themselves in Washington and again elsewhere. Uh, but that is uh, an, an advantage that is potentially outweighed by certainly some of the concerns about what AI may end up doing to all of us in the long run.